When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here, and you are listening to Open Mic with me, Michael Thiessen. This show is produced by Liberty Coalition Canada in partnership with ChristianWeek.org. Liberty Coalition Canada exists to establish Christ's righteousness and justice and to defend those who stand. And Christian Week exists to provide a hope-filled balanced perspective on national and global issues. So um, if you're looking for some print material, head over to christianweek.org. We want to encourage you to read the materials there. I've got two events to tell you about. We're we're counting down. The, the days are limited. I fly right here from Texas to go up to Canada to, for this first event, October 24th, Tuesday at Trinity Baptist Church in Burlington. We were going to have two nights up in Canada, but we decided we wanted to amalgamate everybody together. So we're going with Tuesday, October 24th. And that's at Trinity Baptist Church in Burlington, 7.30 to 9.30. We're going to be recording a live Liberty Coalition Canada podcast with myself and Tim. And that's $25 a person. We want you to come. And of course, we're going to be updating you about the wonderful Christians that we defend in the Canadian legal system. So uh, make sure that you sign up. These were you know, Seven more days, folks, like a week today. Come out. We really want you to, to join us there. And then I'm going to be in South Carolina at the Spark Leadership Conference, October 31st to November 1st. And again, this is where we are platforming Canadian stories uh, of pastors who went through COVID-19 in order to illustrate the evangelistic, legal, and cultural challenges that face North America today. So we want you to hear stories from our pastors up in Canada, and we hope to spark the American church, as I am living in Kentucky now, we want to spark the American church to wake up and make sure they don't go as far left as Canada. So tickets are available and you can get those at sparkconferences.org. So today I am joined and speaking with Dr. David Wood. David, thank you so much for being on the show. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, see By the way, you, you go by Mike or Michael? Because uh, you say Michael. Uh, you know what? It depends on if you want to be scolded by my mother. So uh, if you want to be scolded by my mother, call me Mike, and that's what everybody else does. But if you really want the proper Betty Thiessen pronunciation of my name, it is Michael. What do you go by? Do you go by David or Dave? No, I don't care. Okay. All right. <laughs> so we'll both try to please – let's try to please Betty today, and we'll go by our full names. How about that just for fun? That so was... anyways, uh, D David, your bio, uh, you, you're an evangelical pol uh, apologist, social critic. You're, you, you do a lot of your uh, posting up on YouTube, and you're the head of the Acts 17 Apologetics Ministry. David, welcome to the show. If there's anything I missed there, go ahead and add it. Oh, you're good. Okay. 
So, uh, folks, I was just um, watching David and one of his podcasts uh, on Jordan Peterson. Uh, that was the one that he aired on October 8th. And, uh, and in the backstage right now, David planted a pretty, like, well-used A. And so uh, good for you for understanding that we use that expression as a question mark. And I have to say, David, now that I'm living in the U.S., I hear it, like, when it comes out of my mouth, I hear it pronounced so much more loudly than I've ever heard it in the past. Mm -hmm. But you said that you received a death threat from a Canadian Muslim who actually used a in the death threat. Yeah, that was, uh, that was years ago. We we're doing, it was a live, it was a live call-in show back in the day. Uh, the, the show was called Jesus or Muhammad, but it was just live call-in show. So anyone could call in. So, uh, for a while there would be shakes calling us in and they wouldn't do well. So, uh, it eventually ended up just being like random people and stuff. But, uh, we were talking one day and we got the caller and the guy goes, uh, he says, uh, so you guys are talking about Muhammad, eh? We're like, yeah, we are. And he goes, well, I'm going to hang you and blah, blah. He said, he's going to, anyway, he said he's going to do a bunch of stuff. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the, the, the show finished. So the show finished and then we were all like, Oh, this, this guy's got to be Canadian. But after the entire show was over, the guys who were running, who were running the, uh, running the studio, they came out of the room and they said, right after they hung up on that guy, they got a call from Homeland security said, give us the callback number. And it was, a, it was of course a, a Canadian number. And I was like, wait, Homeland security's watching this show to see if any jihadis call us in. It's like, I, that's when I started thinking these guys are actually, more on the ball than I'm aware of. Like I'm thinking, because I, I think of the government as completely incompetent at dealing with uh, with jihad. And then it started sinking in. And, I, and I, I realized after a while, because we lived in the Bronx at that time, and I, I thought about it, I was like, you know, they, they got, there was 9-11, but after that, I counted, there were 12 attempted terrorist attacks in a row and they, they stopped them all. They were all stopped. And I was like, maybe these guys aren't as, aren't actually as dumb as I think. And it would be weird things like uh, um, people would uh, would be threatening to murder me and stuff like this. And all of a sudden there'd be a, a, a cop car parked in front of us for all day stuff. And I'm like, are they actually paying attention to when I, when I get, when I'm threatened? Matter of fact, there was, there were a few different times where someone would challenge me to meet him somewhere and say, he's going to kill me. And I'd say, okay, name the place and stuff. And uh, this happened a couple of times where I'd actually go go somewhere where he said he's going to he's going to kill me. And I would make sure someone's recording in case someone actually did something. But uh, there was one time someone told me to meet him somewhere and I went down there and there were four four soldiers standing there with machine guns. And I was like, these guys, uh, I don't know, they might not be as dumb as as everyone thinks. Well, as a non-permanent uh, resident in the United States, I have a great love and appreciation for Homeland. If they're listening to this right now, Homeland Security, thank you so much for all that you do. <laughs> I say that in sincerity and also just because I'm a Canadian living in the U.S. So, um, so David, I think that my listeners are probably at a 5% out of 100% knowledge of Islam. And, and what, what I mean by that is um, I, we've got a pretty good uh, listenership, very intelligent individuals, Christians who love the Lord, trying really hard to understand their Christian worldview as we interact with with the with the modern headlines and, and what's going on on the ground. But I think Islam, uh, because it, it is such a deceptive religion, uh, because multiculturalism has been such a push in Canada, 
there is is a real difficulty. And I'll frame the conversation this way. Actually, up in Canada, just a few weeks ago, there was a there was a there was a protest called the Million Man March, and it it originated with one Muslim trying to organize Muslim families to protest all of the radical LGBT curriculum in the Canadian schools. And it, 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 it's awful. You're talking about pornography being read in the schools, total gender ideology, gender fluidity. And there was a lot of Christians holding back from participating just as normal Canadian citizens and parents, simply because the organizer was starting with the Muslim group. And, and what happened over the weeks, weeks that followed was there, there seemed to be like the organization flailing a little bit, needing some support. So a bunch of Christians jumped in and it became a very parent focused, um, movement for the protest, but it was clear that there's Muslims and Christians standing beside each other. And that caused a lot of Christians to go, I don't know if we're comfortable with this. I don't know what we should be doing about this. And then of course, certainly now with what's been going on in, uh, in Israel and all of the pro-Palestinian protests that are going on all over the world, that's been a, that's been a dividing line. So can you take some of our listeners and just help them understand maybe what are the basic claims of Islam? Where are Muslims getting their uh, presuppositions from? Who who do they assume has authority in their life? And can we start with that and kind of help everybody understand uh, those starting points? Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, let me say first, and by, by the way, just interrupt me anytime I'm not being clear or you want to uh, want me to uh, go into more detail or less detail on, on something. But, um, yeah, it, it's actually a, a problem that that. Christians and and Westerners in general just don't know a lot about Islam. Uh, it's a similar situation with cults, where where someone who is in a cult is sort of trained in the cult how to criticize other people's positions, whereas the other person might have no clue how to how to respond to those or how to criticize that position. Doesn't know anything about it. And Islam is is similar in that Islam. Um, so Muhammad's born around five seventy. So you're talking centuries after the time of Jesus. Uh, he supposedly receives his first revelation around the year 610 AD. So he's 40 years old, starts receiving revelations. It's interesting. He actually thought he was demon possessed, tried to hurl himself off a cliff because he didn't want make, people making fun of him. And he went home and his wife and her cousin convinced him that he's actually a prophet. These are revelations from God. You're not, you're not demon possessed. Um, so my, anyways, my wife tries to convince me I'm a prophet all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, th think <laughs> about the situation. <laughs> she's listening. She's going to be like, uh, it's a little bit of the opposite. I was going to no, I mean, keep going. No, I just mean, think about the, think about how interesting this is. Muhammad's impression of what he encountered in the yeah. cave of Hira was that it, it was demonic. Yeah. And his wife is kind of trying to talk him down from committing suicide. And she's, no, you're a prophet. You're a prophet. And then right. it, they just, they just run with that forever. Uh, but anyway, the point is, Islam starts in an atmosphere where Muslims are encountering Jews and Christians. And so it's built into criticisms of uh, what, are, what are called the people of the book. Jews and Christians are built into the scriptures. And so Muslims just learning how to be Muslims and learning the Quran as they're growing up, they're, they, they have a, attacks and criticisms against Christianity. If they go and get into conversation and they've been sort of raised all their lives to, to bring up certain criticisms about the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the incarnation and uh, Jesus' death uh, for sins and so on, 
they're trained to be able to attack those positions. If Christians have no idea what the Muslims going to say and what the what what Muslims believe, they have no idea how to respond. And just in general, very dangerous to have an atmosphere of ignorance because it allows the Muslim preacher to come in and say pretty much whatever he wants. Um, so a Muslim preacher will go in, find out what something what someone is interested in, or what someone respects, or what someone likes, and they'll just go with that. So very common over the over the in recent decades. To um, matter of fact, you could go back even further in the 1960s, um, where Islam was taking off in the African American community with people like uh, Malcolm X and um, Muhammad Ali and so on, and it's spreading there. And the message being presented was: look at Christianity. Christianity enslaves people, but Islam frees the slaves. And it's like they could only use that argument because it was an atmosphere of complete ignorance. I mean, the, the Muslim sources on the life of Muhammad hadn't even been translated into English. You, there was no way to refute this unless you were familiar with the sources in Arabic. But I mean, Muhammad bought, owned, sold and traded black African slaves. They the uh, uh, the Muslim community, his followers, in, I mean, institutionalized the African slave trade. While Christians were wiping it out in Europe, people don't realize that they think of like, you know, recent centuries where uh, slavery was abolished. Christians just kept freeing slaves in Europe until there were no more slave markets in Europe. And so what happened was the slave trade was alive and well and kept alive in Africa. And so when Europeans started going to other places and realizing, hey, we can bring we can have slaves in other places that we're starting new colonies on, they had to go to Africa to get them. Because the slave trade was the slave trade there, thanks to Islam, was alive and well. And so they go there, get their slaves, and bring them over. And then you end up with a kind of uh, race-based slavery, just because that's where they were buying the slaves from, and and the the slaves had been freed in Europe, and there were no slave markets. And so, and and then it's interesting. Then Christians get get blamed for it instead of you know in, instead of Muhammad. Uh, but the point the point there is. Uh, you see that on that issue, um, Muslim Muslim preachers will go in and say, hey, you believe in women's rights? Muhammad was practically the greatest feminist who ever lived. Uh, oh, you like science? You like science in the West? The Quran is filled with scientific uh, insights that couldn't possibly have been known by Muhammad. They must come from God. So, so they'll just adapt the message to what anyone knows. And if no one is in a if no one knows about what Islam teaches, no one's in a position to raise their hand and say, wait, you're, you're saying Muhammad is a champion of women's rights. What about, you know, Surah 434, you beat your wives into submission. What about uh, taking sex captives? What about all these things? Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of important, not just for Christians who are going to be missionaries or something like that. It's important for the Christian community in general to know something to be able to correct uh, myths and, and lies that are that are being spread about Islam. So it, it is a, a very important time for Christians uh, to know at least the basics. And we can we can go through uh, the basics right right here. So I, go I for it, David, you no, know, jump into the basics, because I, I'm glad that you thank you for, you know, I was trying to frame the conversation. Thank you for reframing it, because it it is very important, especially with mass immigration uh, particularly in Canada. And I, you know, man, I'm in Dallas and there was a pro-Palestinian protest here, uh, on the weekend, but in Canada, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about um, significant numbers of, uh, of immigration coming from predominantly Muslim countries. So like, this is a, this is a thing that every Christian is going to have to deal with and, and has been dealing with it potentially by not dealing with it because they don't know anything about it. So so go for mm -hmm. it. What are the basics? And I mean, by the way, that that's kind of a shame. I mean, you know, you could have issues with immigration, especially if you're, you know, you're thinking, hey, they don't do a good job distinguishing someone who 
wants to come here for a better life and someone who is you know, has some really dangerous ideas. Governments don't do a, a terribly good job of distinguishing between those two. Uh, but think about this from from just from a, a like a Christian perspective, you could you could you could look at this and say, wow, you know, we're commanded in the Bible to make disciples of all nations. And we've got all people from all nations right here, you know, down the street from us, we've got people from all nations. So what an awesome opportunity for for evangelism and instead we somehow absorb the idea nope don't 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 bring these topics up you're just gonna hurt people's feelings or something like that which is odd because lots of muslims would love to talk to you about islam and christianity they they think they want to correct you and convert you lots of times christians just have to open the door and 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 get into that discussion so yeah we got to get past the the idea of uh that it's a kind of a western idea you don't talk about politics and religion because you'll just end up hurting people's feelings um that that's a that's a stupid idea and lots of muslims do not share that idea so don't think oh i'm just going to be offending people if we if we talk about this uh, but as far as uh, as far as Islam goes, you can. So Muhammad, again, is born around 570, uh, dies in around 632. Um, so he's he's 40 years old. He's 40 years old when he supposedly receives his first revelation. Uh, then he, at that time, he's in uh, Mecca in what's now Saudi Arabia. And he's there for about 12 years. At first, he's preaching kind of in secret to people he knows. And then he, he starts preaching more and more publicly. But he was condemning the religious practices of the polytheists who were around him. And this matter of fact, this you can actually this ties into the situation uh, in with with the the Israeli uh, Gaza uh, uh, conflict going on right now. But during this time, Muhammad is surrounded by polytheists. And one of his main lines of argument and evidence for his status as a prophet, he's talking to polytheists, and he keeps saying, I'm in line with the Jews and the Christians. You can ask the Jews and the Christians. I'm prophesied in their scriptures, and I, uh, I'm preaching the same thing that they preach. And so he's, he's constantly appealing. While he's in Mecca, he's constantly appealing to the Jews and the Christians as people who would support his claims to be a prophet. And the revelations he received at that time, they're along the lines of, it's Muslims, Jews, and Christians all united against polytheists and pagans. So, so we're all together. He's saying that when he's surrounded by polytheists. Uh, so after about 12 years, in the, in the, so in the year 622, um, after more than a decade of, of criticizing the beliefs there, the Muslims decide to leave because the, the persecution's dialing up. And so they flee to a, a city called Medina. And Medina had three large tribes of Jews. And Muhammad goes there and he really thinks these Jews are going to be on his side. and They're going to support his claim. Uh, they kind of like laughed at him, right? It's like, are, are you serious? Uh, so they, they had two main problems. One, he was claiming to be an Ishmaelite. So he's a descendant of Ishmael. So he's saying, hey, I go back to Abraham too. And they're like, Ishmael, you, you, you're a descendant of Ishmael. You think that's going to be that's going to impress us? Uh, and the other thing, he was telling them, "Hey, Jesus is is the Messiah. We get we the Christians are right. Jesus is the Messiah. You need to accept him as your Messiah." And so they didn't accept that. They uh, yeah, they 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 over and over again uh, pulled rank on him and said, "You don't know what's in the scriptures. You don't know what you're talking about. You have no clue about the, the revelations." Uh, and you're claiming to be in our book, where? Book of trust me, bro. You have no, you have no, you can't show us where you are in the scriptures. You're claiming us as your authority and so on. And anyway, Muhammad became more and more hostile towards the Jews. And it's interesting, there was a little transitional period 
Uh, people can read this in Surah 5, verse 82 of the Quran, where the message changed from Jews, Christians, and Muslims united against polytheists. Uh, that changed uh, as Muhammad is receiving Surah 5. It changed to Christians and Muslims united against Jews and polytheists. So Surah 5, verse 82, Muhammad says, the uh, well, supposedly Allah says that the most hostile towards the true believers are Jews and the pagans. And he says the closest in love to the Muslims are the Christians. And so it's, hey, now it's now it's Christians and Muslims united against uh, Jews and polytheists. Of course, then Muhammad talked to the Christians uh, and the Christians rejected him. And then finally, the final marching orders were in Surah 9. And that's where you get Surah 9, verse 29, fight those who do not believe in Allah. And it specifically refers to Jews and Christians uh, who he put in the polytheist category now because Christians believe Jesus is the son of God. And he says that, that Jews believe Ezra is the son of God. Now, we have not been able to find one reference in history to any Jew who ever called Ezra the son of God. But that was the, the claim was that Jews believe Ezra is the son of God the same way Christians believe Jesus is the son of God. Total nonsense. But that was the justification for uh, ultimately for the call to violently subjugate Jews and Christians. And so, um, oh, go ahead. No, so so right there, you you've mentioned the surahs, the the chapters of the Quran, and I, I think many people who um, are, I, I think it's a general understanding that they are not chronologically ordered, the way that we would typically understand the the the, the Christian Bible to be ordered. Um, they're more like the New Testament, the the length of uh, the length of letters. Um, so how how do you how do you date the surahs? Um, as you're trying, because again, I, you know, many, many have said that the, that the, that this transitional point makes the Quran, you know, Muhammad speaking out of both sides of his face. Mm -hmm. um, how do you date a surah and how do you know which ones are the, are like the, the latter surahs that have now made this transition? Yeah. So this is, this is kind of a, an ongoing problem. Uh, if you're just deciding, hey, I'm going to sit down and read the Quran. So this is Quran. Uh, no, notice this is a pretty small book, and this is English and Arabic and commentary, all in this, all in this little book. So the, the, right. notice the the actual text of the Quran is is very. It, it's it's not a lot. It's about two thirds the size of the New Testament, the entire uh, the entire Quran. But yeah, one of the ongoing issues is that it is not arranged chronologically. Uh, they basically arranged it. In one of the silliest ways possible, they just said, how are we going to arrange it? Let's arrange it from longest to shortest. Apart from the prayer, at the, the, the opening prayer in, in Surah 1, they arranged it from longest to shortest. Uh, problem is, it's, 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 it's all over the place in terms of chronology. And the reason that that causes the difficulty is one of the fundamental principles of understanding and interpreting the Quran is their doctrine of abrogation, that later revelations can abrogate or cancel earlier revelations. But notice, if you just read through, you don't know what, you don't know what is abrogating or canceling what. And it, that similarly allows a Muslim preacher to mess with people and kind of say, oh, look, this is what Islam teaches on it. Where, whereas if you know it, you might know, oh, well, two years later, that was abrogated by a completely different, uh, completely different command. Um, so yeah, you, you cannot, from the Quran itself, determine 
any sort of, of dates. You have details in the Quran that if you know the history of Muhammad and the battles they were fighting and so on, then you can actually look these up. But uh, the easiest way would be to just go to a site and look up a chronological order of chapters of the Quran or something like this, and you'll get a list that is, it's based on uh, either references in their other sources, which say this chapter came down when this situation was arising, or uh, internal information in the surahs. If they're talking about a particular battle and we have an idea of when that battle occurred, then you can you can date that. Uh, so you, you there will be some disputes about certain chapters and the ordering and so on. But there's there's you could get a pretty pretty uh, straightforward uh, general timeline uh, down of the sources there. Oh, and one one more one more thing as far as sources because people think you know, Christians have the Bible and Muslims have the Quran, and that's, uh, it's not that simple. So the Quran is not similar to the Bible. It's very, very different from the Bible. The Bible is a collection. The Bible is a collection of, of 66 books, and, and those books are very different genres, whereas the Quran is all supposedly revealed to one man. Um, there are around 40 different authors in the Bible, a bunch of different prophets and so on. This is all supposedly revealed to one person, Muhammad. And uh, so if you, the closest thing to it would be like certain passages of the prophets, like, you know, some of the, like, like Isaiah or something like that, where it's, it's, you know, just getting revelation or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so it's more like that, but uh, this isn't their only source. So the idea is Muslims believe that this is, the speech of Allah, and they believe it's the eternal speech of Allah. So they believe that Allah from all eternity had his speech exactly the way he wanted it. And then beginning in 610 AD, he, he starts revealing it to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel and reveals, uh, reveals this over a period of about 23 years. Uh, and then it's, it's, all, it's all collected and then they have their Quran. Uh, so that the Quran supposedly has no input from Muhammad. The Quran is supposedly just the speech of Allah. So it's very, very different from like, let's say the, you know, Matthew sitting down to write the gospel of Matthew, where he's right, he's sitting down writing it. Muhammad is just receiving it. So in this sense, Muhammad, he's kind of like a mailman, right? He's just, hey, I'm just delivering it. I'm just, I got it. And I, you know, I, Gabriel passed it on to me. I'm passing it on to you. Uh, but the Quran also says, uh, Surah 33, verse 21, that, that Muhammad is the pattern of conduct for Muslims. So he's a pattern of conduct, but the Quran doesn't give you a lot of information about Muhammad. You have to get that from other sources. Uh, the Quran also says that you can't be a true Muslim unless you submit to all of Muhammad's decisions. You're not a real Muslim unless you submit to all of Muhammad's decisions. Well, the Quran isn't Muhammad's decisions. That's the eternal speech of Allah. So if you want Muhammad's decisions on political matters and moral, moral matters and so on, you have to go outside the Quran. And so they have these uh, these massive multi-volume collections of other books that are called the Hadiths. And uh, so like like Sahih al-Bukhari is the most popular one. That's nine volumes. It's nine volumes of, of stories about things Muhammad uh, said and did. And that's one of six main collections in Sunni Islam. So there are piles and piles of Muslim sources. And then they have the Sirah, which are like biographies. And then they have the Tafsir, which are commentaries. And so the impact that this has had on the Muslim community over the centuries, uh, because the Quran tells you you're not a real Muslim if you don't submit fully to any of Muhammad's decisions. And the Quran says that you're not a real Muslim if you even have resistance against anything Muhammad said. The outcome of this over the centuries has been, 
if you just try to read some of the Quran yourself, you're probably going to misinterpret it and, and get it wrong. And you're actually going to be in trouble with Allah. And so you either learn all of it, you either just become like a scholar or you keep your mouth shut and listen to your scholars and don't, you just, you just do, you just do what, what they tell you. And, uh, it, it, oh yeah. And, and so it's basically just, just to, to put it all into a, into a kind of a, um, kind of a nutshell, uh, because this, this happens in the Hadith, they sort of condense everything like the basics of the basics down to the basic practices and the basic, uh, beliefs and the basic, the basic, um, the basic practices, a lot of people are familiar with, they've seen this sort of thing. So the basic practices are reciting the Shahada. So that's number one, you, um, you confess that there's no God, but Allah and that Muhammad is his messenger. That's kind of how, that's how you become a Muslim. Then they have their daily prayers, their five daily prayers. They have uh, giving alms, they have fasting during Ramadan, and they have the pilgrimage to Mecca. So those are like the essential uh, Muslim practices. And then they have another, so those are called the five pillars of Islam. And then they have the, what are called the six articles of faith. So these are your basic beliefs about God, the oneness of God, about belief in angels and books and prophets and uh, the day of judgment and so on. And so, uh, yeah, so you, you've got the, the beliefs and the practices. This would be one, it would be one thing. It would be one thing if they said, hey, here's the beliefs and here's the practices. But Islam also teaches that, um, that the world has to be compelled to submit to this. And that's when you get jihad. So, uh, and we're, we're kind of, we've been seeing that for a while. It's really interesting that point that you just made about um, the life of Muhammad and not being a true Muslim, if you have any form of resistance to that. It, 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 as you said that, I was I was thinking about how the book of Acts um, honors the Berean church for saying that, you know, they, they received Paul's testimony and th then they went and studied the scriptures to verify that what he said is is, is correct, and and so it, it seems the exact opposite exhortation. The Christian is supposed to study the Word of God to confirm that the expert in front of him is uh, is actually is actually teaching the Word of God faithfully. And um, as you just stated, I think quite helpfully, because of the mass volumes and confusions uh, um, with the hadiths. You've got these five pillars, which I the five pillars seem pretty simple. I I think I could do that by yeah. works. Um, yeah. Uh, the 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 six confessions uh, seem pretty simple, but then it's like anything else. Like you still have to follow everything else, but you're never going to understand everything else. So just you have to follow uh, the expert. And, and man, that is the that is the opposite of what the Christian is told. And 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 encouraged is to examine the scriptures so that uh, we're handling the scriptures correctly. So that, I think that's a, a pretty important distinction here. Now, when you get into political uprisings or when when you're getting into jihad, it would seem from what you've just said, there's a whole lot of people that are going to go and do what they're told with very literal critical thought, even of their own religion and faith. Yeah, that's a. Uh... And, and 
to be fair, it's not it's not that the Quran is saying, hey, don't learn this or something like that. It's just all these warnings about making mistakes. And you find the same thing in the Hadith where Muhammad says that uh, the, the sin of innovation, which is called bidda, uh, that's that's coming up with your own interpretation, your own way of doing things, your own understanding, something like that. Uh, that that's a ticket to hell. And so you have all these warnings. If you find any resistance against Muhammad said, or you come up with your own interpretation or something like that, um, then it's it's a uh, it just seems like unavoidable that you're gonna do innovation or you're gonna you're gonna resist what Muhammad said if you only learn part of it. And so it's kind of like the, the Quran isn't saying, "Hey, don't learn this." It's just saying, "Hey, if you get any of this wrong, then you're in trouble. You're in a lot of trouble, and you're going to hell." And so the just the way it turned out was, uh, okay, you learn all of it or listen to the people who learned all of it. But notice what happens then, which which uh, is along the lines of what you're pointing out. Now you're trained to just listen to what your 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 guy says, listen to what your sheikh says, just keep just keep just do whatever he says. Well, that gives the sheikh a lot of power to tell people uh, what to believe. And it could be, you know, it, that could be somewhat innocuous or it could be deadly. He could be, he could be telling people to go out and, and kill and, uh, telling people that, that, you know, they have to go, uh, slaughter the unbelievers in the name of Allah. And so that can be very, very dangerous. And some of the other things that are interesting, uh, it allows, it allows the Muslim scholars and the Muslim, uh, Muslim sheikhs and imams and so on to filter information for the Muslims. There are all these things that are right there in the Muslim sources that would cause Muslims to doubt Islam if they knew about it, but they never know about it. Their, their leaders hide this information from them. And that's, that's another reason why Christians have to learn this stuff, because if they don't hear it from us, they're not going to hear it from anyone else. So I'll, I'll, give, I'll give two quick examples, because these are really, really important things. I mean, if Christians learn these things, uh, just earlier today, I posted a video on Apologetics Roadshow, and it was called Who Pays for Your Sins in Islam? It's very simple. It's a, it's a simple, short video. You can go to Muslims walking out of a mosque and ask every last one of them, who pays for your sins in Islam? And it's either you pay for your own sins in hell or, or Allah just forgives you. And that's what every single Muslim will tell you. That is not what Muhammad said. <laughs> Muhammad said, Muhammad said, that what happens is on the day of judgment, Allah gives every Muslim a Christian or a Jew and says, this is your ransom from the hellfire. And Allah takes the Christian or Jew, puts him in hell in the Muslim's place, takes all of the sins off of the Muslim, that the Muslim, all the sins from the Muslim. And it even says there will be Muslims with sins as heavy as a mountain. Allah will take the mountains of sins off of the Muslims, put them on the Christian who's paying the price for your sins in hell. Now notice that's like a massively distorted version of what's called substitutionary atonement, right? So Christians have the, the, the doctrine that Jesus died for your sins. They actually, no, 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 Jesus didn't die for your sins. Uh, the Christian or the Jew is going to burn in hell uh, paying for your sins. You can walk up to 100 Muslims, 100 out of 100 Muslims have never heard that. Their prophet said it over and over again. They don't know about it. Their scholars do not share this with them. So it's important for us to bring that up because notice that is a very important topic to bring about if you're talking about salvation and, and, and the work of Christ and so on. It's important to know that so that you can, you can say, hey, hey, I'm, I'm actually paying for your sins according to your prophet. I pay for your, your sins according to your prophet. You, you, do you believe that? Uh, do you believe that's okay?
the way that you just connected that to substitutionary atonement in in two ways number one again you can see how islam has robbed from christianity and and how there's this concept of forgiveness. It's like a, it's like a bad copy. It's like a yeah, bad copy. Like, it's like a bad like, plagiarism. And then secondly, man, can you imagine what what the experts think of Jews and Christians if if like like your 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 my atonement like that's how little a lot yeah. thinks of you. Yeah, I'm your savior. By the way, I'm like, your savior in Islam. Isn't that weird? Right. Okay. I, so so on this whole point about what's in the Quran and what's not, what's taught and what's not. You just gave that one example. Um, oh, I wanted to give gonna... one more, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. So I'll let you give the other one, but I have a third to ask about, and I'll just mm -hmm. put it on there just so you can start thinking about it. And and the the whole idea of Islam is a religion of peace, of course, and and at the same time, you know, it it is the Quran specific about jihad or are the hadith specific about jihad? So that, that's my question for you. After you give this example, it would be a third example of so many people walk around and there is a claim that Islam is a religion of peace. And of course we know that peace through submission, but specifically what, what do the, what do the um, Islamic authorities say about jihad? So give your example and then talk about jihad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, one of the other, in fact, if if I could change anything in the world of apologetics and evangelism, it would just be getting Christians to understand what the Quran says about the Bible so that they can make Muslims understand what the Quran says about the Bible. Because I mentioned uh, information getting filtered for them, and then they end up with a completely wrong idea of what their own prophet and their own God uh, taught. Um, because the goal of their preachers seems to be keep them confident in Islam so that they don't leave Islam. It doesn't seem to be giving them an accurate, informa accurate information about what the Muslim sources uh, teach, except for insofar as, you know, the, the essential practices and doctrines. But uh, one of the most interesting things there are is that the Quran over and over again, like a beating drum, affirms the inspiration and the preservation and the ongoing authority of the Jewish and Christian scriptures, the Torah and the gospel. And so the Quran specifically says that, that Jews are not supposed to judge by the Quran. Jews are supposed to judge by the Torah. Christians are not supposed to judge by the Quran. Christians are supposed to judge by the gospel. The Muhammad really seemed to believe that the Torah and the gospel said the same thing that he was teaching. They don't. And it, it's, it's, a, it's just a huge problem that he's affirming, he's affirming the inspiration and the preservation and the authority of scriptures that completely contradict Islam on basic fundamental doctrines. And so this was just, this is just a, a disaster for Islam. He's affirming scriptures that contradict his own book. And so it, I'll give people references, a few references if they want to uh, look these up. But Surah 3, verses 3 to 4, uh, Allah says that he inspired the Torah and the gospel and that he gave them as a guidance for mankind. Um, Surah, for Muslims who want to say, ah, but that was just the originals and they lost them. Surah 7, verse 157 says that Jews and Christians still have the Torah and the gospel and that we find Muhammad mentioned in there. Uh, Surah 18, verse 27 says that no one is capable of changing Allah's words. It's like, wait, every Muslim you run into will say your Bible's been corrupted, but Allah says no one can change his words. Uh, then you have, you have all kinds of passages 
where, uh, so Surah 5, verse 43, Jews are told they don't even need Muhammad. They don't need Muhammad because they have the Torah. Surah 5, verse 47, commands Christians to judge by the gospel. Surah 5, verse 68 says, Jews and Christians have no ground to stand upon unless they stand upon the Torah and the gospel. And in a very interesting verse, Muhammad was doubting his revelations at one point, and Allah answered him in Surah 10, verse 94, where he says, if you doubt what we have revealed to you, ask those who read the book before you. So Muhammad is told he can only confirm his revelations are from God by making sure his revelations line up with our revelations. And if we have a corrupt book, that makes no sense. What you want to make sure your revelations line up with corrupt revelations? That would don't, that would mean that your revelations are corrupt too. It makes no sense. It, th these verses make no sense unless we have reliable, authoritative scripture from God, and it hasn't been corrupted. So the question, and for if you go back to the, basically the first century and a half of Islam. They didn't claim that that Jews and Christians had corrupt scriptures. They said that we we're misrepresenting and misinterpreting our scriptures. It's later Muslims who actually find out what's in the Torah and the gospel, and they say, oh, your scriptures have been corrupted. They realize it doesn't, it doesn't line up. Now, notice, if you can actually get a Muslim to understand that, and then you get the Muslim to say, look, look, look right here in the Quran, right here in the Quran, Surah 4, verse 157 says, Jesus didn't die on the cross. Look, the gospel says over and over again, Jesus died on the cross. So there's a contradiction here. So notice we've got a problem because we either Christians either have the inspired, preserved, authoritative word of God or we don't. One or the other. If we had the inspired, preserved, authoritative word of God, the Quran is false because it contradicts it contradicts what's in the gospel. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that we don't have the inspired, preserved, authoritative word of God. We got something that's corrupt or something else, in which case the Quran is wrong because the Quran says we have the inspired, preserved, authoritative word of God. So if we have the word of God, Islam is false. If we don't have the word of God, Islam is false. That's just what happens when you affirm scriptures that contradict your own scriptures. So notice how simple that is. Everything I just said is so simple. If Muslims actually knew what was in their sources, they don't. They, they almost never do. Again, you could go up to 100 Muslims. Every reference I just gave you for what the Quran says about the Bible 100 out of 100 Muslims have never heard any of those in their entire lives as Muslims, unless they heard, unless they heard it from us watching, watching a video or something like that. So that's an ongoing issue, and, and Christians really, really need to learn at least the basics. I mean, if Christians just learn one or two of the verses I just gave, they, they, they cause, all sorts of, uh, cause all sorts of thinking lights to suddenly turn on with the Muslim going, whoa, why, why, why about one? Why, one, why is Allah affirming these scriptures if they've been corrupted? But two, why has no one ever told me this? Why, is, why, why have my leaders kept me from knowing this? So that's a big issue. And you, you brought up another one, the issue of jihad. And this goes back into the Quran being completely disorganized and to Muhammad receiving revelations in all sorts of different contexts. And uh, uh, if you go to the Quran, you could go anywhere. You go to the Quran, you go to the Sirah, you go to the, the Hadith, you go to the Tafsir, you always get the same basic pattern. And the pattern is that jihad proceeds in stages. It's not just, it's not just one scenario. It's you have different commands in different contexts. And so if you just look at the life of Muhammad, when Muhammad was in Mecca and he only had about 100 followers, the message, the, the revelations that he was receiving during this time promoted peace and tolerance with the unbelievers. And so it, it, it wasn't it, the, the revelations were, hey, we disagree with you. God will be the final judge. Let's not fight over this stuff. Those were the revelations Muhammad received when he was a small portion of the population. Later, when he moved to Medina, 
and he formed alliances with various tribes and he had a lot more followers, but wasn't yet able to actually take over the population. But he, he, was, he had a, a much bigger uh, group of followers. Then the revelations changed to defensive jihad. Defensive jihad, you're fighting, but you're fighting if someone else starts it. Someone else starts it. If someone else is persecuting you, someone drives you off your land, oppresses you. Uh, but also, I mean, it, just if someone like criticizes you, makes fun of Muhammad or something like that, that could be a cause for fighting. But it's always fighting based on someone attacking or criticizing or doing something. Someone else has to start it. No, those are the commands that Muhammad's receiving during this time. And it's even things like uh, fight until they stop fighting you. And so there, Muslims will look at those passages and say, see, this is just defense. Who doesn't believe in self-defense, right? Those aren't the final revelations. Later on, when Muhammad and his followers become the most powerful force in Arabia, the revelations change once again. And that's where we get like Surah, uh, Surah 9, uh, verse 29, fight those who do not believe. The revelations change to fighting people based on what they believe. And so you have that in the Quran. You have Muhammad saying in the Hadith, I've been commanded to fight people until they say there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. And so the, the, the message changes over time. And there are some very interesting things about this. What you, what you end up with is when someone says, hey, Islam uh, calls for violence, Islam calls for uh, jihad, they can point to a passage that Muhammad received in Mecca and say, what are you talking about? Look right there, Surah 109, verse 6. To you be your religion and to me be my religion. That's what it teaches. Now, that's what Muhammad taught in Mecca when, he's com when he was completely outnumbered. Those are not the final marching orders. Um, you've got, again, you've got fight those who do not believe in Allah. That's Surah 9, verse uh, 29. You have um, uh, Surah 9, verse 73, wage jihad, not only against the unbelievers, but also the hypocrites. We are told ISIS can't be real Muslims because they were killing other Muslims. That's a command. That's a command. You don't just kill unbelievers. You kill hypocrites, people who are claiming to be Muslims, but they're, they're, not, they're not following it as as they should. So you have all these uh, calls for violently subjugating the world in both the Quran and the Hadith. But what's interesting is you can look at any country in the world. Any country in the world follows this exact pattern. If you look at places like the United States, yeah, if you look at places like the United States, yeah, if you look at places like the United States or Canada, where Muslims make up a tiny percent of the population, what have we been hearing for decades? Islam's a religion of peace and tolerance. That's what it's all about. If you go to places where Muslims make up 10 or 20% of the population, you better not criticize Islam or, or oppress Muslims in any way or do anything they're going to find objectionable, objectionable, or people start you know burning cities to the ground and so on. You saw this in France recently, right? The population's getting around 10%. And you, you, you can burn cities to the ground uh, in that situation. More common in places, in certain places in Africa, where you start getting like 30 or 40% of the population, uh, then you get a lot, notice they're not able to take over, but you see a lot more defensive jihad. Don't say one word about our prophet. Don't, don't mess with us in any way. There's going to be violence. And then you can look at any, any uh, Muslim country in the world where they dominate the population, Christians and other non-Muslims are going to be second-class citizens. So you look at how Christians are treated in Pakistan, the, the Copts in, uh, in Egypt, and so on. And so you've got this, uh, this amazing pattern here. Um, and it's, so, the, the, so the, the teaching is not, are you supposed to go out and, and subjugate unbelievers or not? It's, 
what situation is the Muslim community in? Are you more like the situation that Muhammad was in in Mecca? If so, you promote peace and tolerance and say, hey, God will, God will figure this out later. Are you in a position where you're strong enough to fight, but not able to take over the society? Okay, then you make sure people understand not to mess with you and fight if they mess with you. Uh, or do you dominate a society? And, and if so, then the unbelievers have to be have to be subjugated, have to be second class citizens. And so, uh, yes, yeah, all right there. It is not difficult. I mean, I mean, how difficult is it? We, we haven't even been going an hour and we've gone through all of the essentials that people need to understand that would be very important for people to understand. And for some reason, politicians, journalists, educators, ed entertainers, they're completely confused by Islam. They don't they don't know what to do. I want to I want to give two thoughts back to what you've just said. Um, so first of all, um, that is clear because, of course, the, the the teachings in the Quran and the Hadiths are giving the clear prescriptions, but then in the exact command to be like Muhammad, you get to you get permission very clearly to act in those different stages. And that's, that is very inconsistent for Christians where we're to promote justice and righteousness um, in, in no matter w what context that we are in. And, and uh, so that's a very, I, I'm really appreciated that you went through that, David, because I've, I've seen that in my lifetime. So I've said this week, as we've been walking around the United States, driving around the United States, it really feels to me like it felt in the days after 9-11. And when I say that, I mean, we lived in Boston. Uh, when the two planes took off from Logan Airport, uh, we, we I, I can remember this the seat I was sitting in when we when we watched the attack uh, being um, unfolding in front of our eyes. And um, this whole idea of promote peace when you're at X number and then say, don't mess with us when you're at at X number, you know, in the days after nine eleven, uh, I can't remember any mass protests that were pro-Saudi Arabian, pro-Afghani, uh, pro-Palestinian protests in the street the way that we've seen j just in this last week. Like the, the freedom and the confidence and the projection of strength that the Muslim community has stated in Canada and in the United States, in cities all across North America, that is already a change. Now, feel free to agree or disagree with that, but that is, that's how I feel on the ground. I'm looking at it going, man, you know, when, when 9-11 occurred, we Christians were encouraged, you know, don't seek out Muslim immigrants and, and take vengeance. Like, yeah, I remember the sermon in our church after the Sunday, downtown Boston was, uh, um, uh, why not rather be wronged? Uh, leave vengeance for the Lord because there, 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 there was this, this narrative that Muslim uh, U.S. citizens were fearful. Now you're seeing what's going on in Israel, uh, atrocities everywhere, and you have projected strength, unified protests, calling for absolute, um, uh, absolute, uh, I want to say, uh, innocence of, of, of the, of the of Hamas, like that's a different world already, and we've seen it since nine eleven uh, until today. I, do you feel that? Uh, do you think I'm off kilter in that observation? 
Um, no, and I mean there there are some reasons for that. One, it's it's just a it's just the general pattern that uh, that even goes back to the sort of three stages of jihad. Um, and by the way, when we talk about stages of jihad, that doesn't come from us. That you can you can read that straight out of Muslim commentaries and straight out of Muslim books. Uh, if you buy the the English translation of Sahih al-Bukhari, it includes this essay breaking down and say, here, here's what you do in this situation. Here's what you do in that situation. Here's what you do once you once you uh, are, are powerful enough. Um, so you have these stages built into it. But there, there's sort of this, um, there's a sort of a global issue as well. Uh, but as, uh, as the numbers of Muslims increase globally and become stronger and stronger, and as they sense weakness in other people, and they know you're not going to do anything about it, the tendency is to just become more and more aggressive over time. And so if, if you think there's, you know, if you think the, the aggression is rising right now, just, you know, catch, catch people 10 years from now, uh, unless something changes, it'll probably, it'll probably um, be worse. Um, but uh, in addition to that, you have uh, for, for people who've been interacting with, uh, with Muslims and so on, there's something that's been going on that's been causing them to panic. It's been causing them to panic. And they call it the avalanche of apostasy, meaning, you know, for a while you had the Muslim world and Muslim preachers were able, Muslim leaders were able to keep the Muslim population pretty well insulated from hearing criticisms of Islam and from hearing a serious presentation of alternatives to Islam. Because if you're a Muslim, you know, if you're a, if you had a heart for witnessing the Muslims, you wanted to become, you know, wanted to be a missionary, you had to be very careful because if you were at all successful and they found out, they're going to chop your head off. You went to a Muslim country. Now, because the internet, now I can talk to Muslims in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia if I want. I do it. I do it all the time, um, just on social media. So now we can reach Muslims anywhere with an internet connection, and we have Muslims in the West. And they they call it the avalanche of apostasy just because there are now apostates everywhere. It's estimated uh, over 5% of people who claim to be Muslims in Muslim-majority countries are actually closet atheists. They just can't say anything publicly. Uh, but you have underground churches everywhere. You have tons of Muslims who become atheists. And they're in kind of a panic mode. They don't know what to do about it. And so the tendency is actually related to something that went on in the 20th century but the tendency is we're not we're not being aggressive enough we're not being aggressive enough in in really stating what islam is and defending it and and going around and showing how strong we are and so you're going to see these big shows to show uh, islam is it, it's kind of different like like the atheist community they've always tried to represent themselves as we're the smart ones everyone else is dumb we're smart in islam it's we're strong everyone else is weak we're strong and so when things go wrong, they tend to kind of flex, like, ah, watch how strong we are. And so that's what you're seeing now. And, and I said this is connected to what went on in the 20th century. Uh, for, for centuries, you had an Islamic caliphate. And the Islamic caliphate, the, the last Islam, real Islamic caliphate was the Ottoman Empire, and that collapsed. Uh, for, they lost World War I. And uh, that, that land was kind of... Controlled by the British after that, and that's how you know that's how you ended up. The British ended up controlling the land that is that is now Israel and so on. They could they could anyway. That's what happened there. But when when the caliphate collapsed, lots of Muslims are looking at what happened and going, "Wait, why are Western nations so powerful now and they can completely dominate us? What's going on here?" And there were two different directions you could go in that situation. One direction you could go is uh, Muslims need to modernize and become more like Western nations. 
And you actually saw that. If you look at uh, if you look at pictures of Afghanistan or Iran from the 1960s, they looked exactly like they looked exactly like Americans. They were dressing like Americans. They're you know they're doing everything like Americans. But uh, the op you also have the opposite uh, interpretation, which is Allah is not blessing us to be more powerful than these people because we're not being devout enough. We're not being we're not being devout enough. We're not imposing Sharia. We're not being obedient. We're tolerating heresy. We're toler we're, to we're tolerating apostasy. We need to crack down on all of this, and that's when Allah is going to bless us to to become dominant. And that's when you have the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. That's exactly the thinking of of ISIS. ISIS. That's the reason ISIS is going around killing heretics and so on. They're cleansing and purifying the Muslim community so that Allah would then bless them to take over. But you have that same idea that runs through Hamas and everything. It's we've been too weak in the past. And when things go wrong, you actually need to dial up your aggression. You need to dial up your calls for Sharia. You need to dial up the violence. And so as the Muslim community panics more and more about the rise of apostasy and people criticizing Islam and all these nations being more uh, stronger than them, you're just going to you're, you're going to see it. But just keep in mind, there's a there's a there's a silver lining to that to that cloud. It's that they're becoming more aggressive because they're panicking because of all the people leaving Islam. If we can kind of get through this, if we can kind of get through this, and if they eventually realize, hey, the dialing up the violence isn't going to work, well, uh, ho hopefully, hopefully during our lifetimes, we see that this just collapse, like the number of apostates sort of gets so big that they realize, okay, this, the, you know, becoming violent is, is just not going to work. We are approaching 55 minutes when we're trying to um, get through this conversation uh, right on an hour. So I want to let you have the last five minutes on the current conflict between Hamas and Israel. Um, I've never been to Israel. Um, I have been to Lebanon. So I understand the Hezbollah from the north. Um, we have Hamas from the south. And um, maybe... I. David, that's completely unfair. Just explain that what's going on in Israel uh, with Hamas and Israel in five minutes. So actually, I'll narrow it down for you to, to kind of be more of a realistic request. Mm -hmm. When people here in North America hear protesters, so you can just go on Twitter right now and you can just hear the refrain, free Palestine. Um, so there's this concept of, uh, of an occupation. There is a concept of, of uh, liberation. Um, can you help our listeners understand that when people say free Palestine, what they really mean is uh, Israel completely eliminated? And, and how are they going from one to the other? Because we, mm -hmm. we, know that they're, we know that Gaza has been independent, that Israel has given that land back to the Arabs. Uh, I think it's – is this the third time or maybe just the second time? And so the idea of an occupation is is not a reality. They're talking about Israel, the country, as the occupation. Uh, explain that to my listeners a little bit. Yeah. So you have a you have couple couple issues, and this kind of goes back to the history of Muhammad. We were talking about Muhammad uh, having a more and more negative view of the Jews, and you know he he ended up uh, he ended up exiling and uh, even exterminating uh, groups of Jews during his time. The real issue, the real fundamental issue was they just completely embarrassed him. He, he had based a lot of his uh, claims about him being a true prophet on the Jews 
knew that he's a prophet and they would affirm him and they didn't, they laughed at him and this dialed up the hostility. And so the, the Muslim sources are, are filled with uh, a lot of, a lot of hostility towards the Jews up to and including what was included in Hamas's charter. There's a claim by Muhammad um, that the end will not come. The hour will not come. The, the, the final the final judgment and you get your virgins and so on, that's not going to come until you fight the Jews to the extent that the Jews are running and hiding, hiding behind trees and rocks and trees and rocks are going to call out, hey, Muslim, there's a Jew hiding behind me, come kill him. Uh, that comes directly from Muhammad. It's in their most trusted sources. And it is, it is, it is an obvious and indisputable call for, for completely wiping out Jews. So you fast forward to all of a sudden you get to the, the 20th century and it's it's just hilarious to to think that the the Jews are occupiers here or something like that. There was no there was no oh this is Palestine. It's this was the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire lost a war. You had already had Jewish. You had Jews who were always who had always been there. Then you had Jews who moved there and actually bought land. Then you had Jews who were given land and so on. And then. You after after World War II, the British said, "Okay, there's going to be some of this land. Some of this land is going to be dedicated to Jews. Why? Because Jews obviously need a place that they can defend for themselves. You can't say any longer, oh, but you know, other countries will protect you. Other country, I mean, a, another country just rounded them up and put them in cattle cars and took them to death camps. The Jews weren't weren't very confident in other nations uh, protecting them at that point. So the, it was going to be okay. Some of this land is going to be partitioned for Jews. Some of it's going to be partitioned for 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 non-Jews and so on. And the British British uh, announced that they're pulling out, and the surrounding nations all tried to wipe out the Jews. Right, and that's what you have. And the Jews fought back, and the Jews won, and they they had that territory. And then you have uh, you know subs ongoing you know the, the other wars and so on. And you get down to more recent time. And the Jews, where Israel was offering a two-state solution, a lot, um, it was rejected repeatedly because they, people, there were certain people who didn't want a two-state solution because they want to wipe Israel off the map. And so there were people who, always, who never wanted a two-state solution. The only possible solution is wiping Jews off the map. Now, to be clear, there are people, there are people in, in the Palestinian territories, Gaza and the West Bank, who would love a two-state solution now. Um, but you have you have a mixture of people. You have people who don't want any sort of solution other than Jews being wiped off the map. You have people who do want a two state solution. Like, okay, it's just a reality. Uh, they've got Israel. Let's let's try to you know live our lives. And then you have people who actually want a two state solution, but as a stepping stone to eventually they want a big they want a a better terrorist base. And they so they'll they'll yeah they want to agree to it, but they actually it, as a stepping stone to wiping them out later. Yeah. And so you, what you really have here is you have this this really bad situation where you've got you've got Israel here, you've got the Palestinian territories and some in this group want to completely exterminate the other group. And it's just really, really difficult to have uh, have serious negotiations with that. Right. If we're having a discussion and I know you want to kill me and your end game is to kill me. Then it's like, okay, what agreements are we going to come up come up with? Because everything that I agree to you with is just, you know, a your ultimate goal is to exterminate me. So how do I even take anything you're saying seriously? So that's the situation that Israel is in, and uh, it, it's rough because you know they have to they understand that the people they're dealing with only respond to to strength and to shows of force, and that's all that they will that's all that they really listen to. And so as 
you know, Hamas is escalating. Keep in mind, you know, Israel keeps advancing its defenses and so on, its, its fences and, and blowing up tunnels and so on. And faster than they are able to, uh, to, to increase their defenses, groups like Hamas are coming up with increasingly uh, intricate ways of bypassing those. I mean, if you have people on hang gliders going over your fence, how do you, how do you keep them out? If someone can fly over a fence on a hang glider and just gun down a bunch of people at random, like how, how do you even stop that? And so th this is the situation they're in and Israel is concluding, whether, you, whether people agree with them or not, Israel's concluding, uh, we can't just let this, we can't let this go on forever. If they keep coming up with better and better ways to come in and slaughter, then we're just going to have to wipe them out. And the problem is that Hamas then goes and hides in places where there are women and children around. They don't let the women and children leave. They won't let them out of, they won't let them out of the area, let alone out of the territory. Keep in mind, they, they could leave. There, there's a border there. They have a border with Egypt. If, if, if Egypt could open that border and the women and kids could get out of the way for, for the fighting, Hamas won't let them out. Egypt won't let them out. And so uh, they're basically all staying there. And uh, I, I saw, and I'll, I'll just, I'll conclude with this. Uh, I saw, uh, gosh, I forget, I forget who it was, but it was, a, it was a Jewish guy. And he was saying that the situation for people who don't understand it, he says, imagine this, imagine you've got your child with you and there's a terrorist who wants to kill your child. You, he's got a gun and you've got a gun. He wants to kill your child, but he's hiding behind his child. What do you do? He's about to, he's about to kill your child but he's hiding behind his child. What do you do? He says, that's the situation we're in. It's, it, there's, no good, there's no good situation here. Either I let him kill my child because I don't want to shoot and hit his child, or I shoot and I have, to, I have to kill his child to get to him. And I don't want to do either one of these. And they say, but that's what Hamas, that's the situation Hamas keeps putting us in, where we have to do things that we do not want to do in order to protect, in order to protect our own people. And it's just a horrible situation. And guess what? Hamas wants them in that situation because either you either you take the terrorist attack and you don't respond or you do what's necessary to to go either you 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 go you start bombing and stuff like this you do hit women and children because they won't let the women and children out and then you hit a bunch of women and children and that becomes their PR campaign for the next generation of jihadis and it's just a uh, it's just a really really bad situation for everyone well I think that's I think that's a very helpful place to stop for this particular podcast because we're not going to solve all of those problems or even delve into some of those very deep matters. But it's important for Christians to understand that that's that 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 is the scenario right now that that Israel is facing. And David, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Can you share with our listeners any resources that you uh, want to share of your own uh, for people to be able to uh, dig deeper into this topic from what from what you're presenting? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy to go like on YouTube or something and find me just by looking up David Wood. But if, if people actually want to start studying Islam, um, uh, my friend, my best friend in college was Nabil Qureshi. He's a Muslim. He eventually became a Christian. But uh, his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, awesome, uh, awesome intro to just the thinking of a Muslim and, and uh, apologetics and some of the difficulties with Islam. Uh, he also had a follow-up book, uh, No God But One. And that's comparing uh, Christian claims and Muslim claims. And then a, a classic book on apologetics dealing with Islam is uh, Answering Islam by Norm Geisler and Abdul Salib. So uh, th those are all those are all really good uh, places to get started. Thank you so much. Well, um, everybody, would you please share this podcast? Give us a five star rating. And uh, again, this is an important conversation. And so if you've got some folks who are not typical listeners of Liberty Coalition Canada stuff because, you know, we've been 
uh, too COVID sided or too LGBT sided. Well, we have an, an, a new topic that we're diving into today, and uh, we really want to uh, you to join us for that. So make sure you share this video around with some folks who don't typically listen to the podcast. David, thank you so much for mm -hmm. being on. Everybody, Godspeed.